Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View, a new podcast from Morningstar. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar. Every week on this podcast, we'll have an in-depth conversation with an influential person in the realm of money and investing. Our guest for the inaugural episode of this podcast is noted author and advisor William Bernstein. Bill's background and entree to the field of finance is unique. A neurologist by training, Bill self-taught himself the principles of investing and asset allocation, eventually parlaying that knowledge into a successful financial advisory practice in a series of influential, critically acclaimed books such as The Intelligent Asset Allocator. In this conversation, we'll explore Bill's background and how it shaped his development and thinking as an investor. We'll also talk about how he applies those lessons in working with clients who are trying to meet goals like a comfortable, secure retirement. Bill, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Bill, I think your story may be familiar to many of our listeners, but but maybe we should start there because it's not a straightforward path into investments. You, you started as a neurologist, and so maybe let's talk about how you got interested in investments and, and how your personal needs fed your desire to get more informed. Well, I happen to live in a country that doesn't have a functioning social welfare system. So I had to figure out how to save and invest on my own. And as someone who has scientific training, I approached it the way I thought anyone in my situation might, uh, which is to review the peer-reviewed literature and the basic authoritative texts and then to collect data and build models. And in my particular situation, um, I was I was very lucky because um, back in the day when I started doing this uh, 25 years ago, the data were not easily available. If you wanted time series for even the most uh, basic market indices, they weren't easily um, available. And so it took me some effort to collect them, which turned out to be an advantage because relatively few small investors had taken uh, the time and effort to do that. And, uh, you know, back back in the day, 25 years ago, even most physicians didn't know how to spreadsheet. So I had to teach myself how to uh, to do to do that. Uh, and so I uh, built the models on the data and basically built my own mean variance optimizer. I could have bought one for a couple thousand dollars back then, but I wasn't willing to spend that amount of money. And after I had, you know, built a basic portfolio model, uh, now we're getting into the, you know, the mid-1990s, I, I realized that I had done something that almost no other uh, small investors had uh, done. And since I didn't really know that much about basic finance, I had no training in it, uh, that also proved to be a minor advantage as well, since I, I created some models that, that really didn't occur to people uh, in finance. And so I uh, had another piece of luck, which was that the, the web arrived uh, where I was living in the mid-1990s. And so um, taught myself to uh, to code HTML back then and threw up a website and started putting my material online. And you you do that, and it's not long before you start getting the attention of, of journalists. Uh, and by and by, I started publishing books, and uh, uh, that led to um, a career, among other things, in, in finance. 
So given the fact that you were self-taught, it, it put quite a bit of an onus on you to separate the wheat from the chaff, identify text references that, you know, were formative, important to your development as a thinker, an investor, an allocator, an advisor. And so I'm just curious how you went through that process then and, and how it informs your approach today in terms of what it is you choose to spend your time and devote your attention to versus other things that you, you'll skip over and, and leave to others. You know, the, the most basic thing that people, I think, have trouble with is identifying authoritative sources. And again, if you have you know training in any profession, it doesn't have to be in the sciences, it can be in the law or accounting, almost any other field, you, you learn very quickly who is authoritative and who is not. You know, you read Fama in French, you don't read Jim Cramer. Uh, to name to name a name or two, you don't pay so much attention to the talking heads that you see on television. You just intuitively know to pay attention, basically, to people who publish in the peer review literature. And if you can do that, it really it keeps you out of trouble. I I kind of wish it was something that we we taught kids in school uh, to you know how to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, in digital media, it's not that hard to do, but we don't seem to teach people how to do it. When you were first getting started, before you even came upon this idea of creating models and investigating asset allocation further, what were the books that were, were sort of at the top that, that got you informed about the basics of investing and creating a financial plan? Okay. Well, top of the list are three or four uh, books. Uh, number one, of course, Bert Malkiel's um, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Um, Jack Bogle's uh, first book on mutual funds, I think it was Jack Bogle on mutual funds or Bogle on mutual funds. It was the predecessor to Common Sense on mutual funds. Uh, and then, of course, Security Analysis, this great brick of a book by Benjamin Graham that took me about eight months to get through and The Intelligent uh, Investor. And the, the other book, which I found profoundly influential, was Irving Fisher's A Theory of Interest Rates. It's just a beautiful book that talks about the relationship between risk and return, even before modern portfolio theory. You know, he and a few other people had figured out how to properly price uh, securities. And so that was a revelation as well. And so at the time you were consuming these texts, so to speak, I mean, active was quite popular. Growth investing was quite popular. The narrative was very popular. So... Uh, I guess in the face of that, how did you find confidence, comfort in, in what it is you were reading, consuming at that time and, and sort of overcome some of the, some of the doubts that you know, might, have, might have consumed other investors who would have chosen a different path, for instance, to chase growth stocks or, or invest in active funds? Well, the, the empirical data were and still are extraordinarily popular. Uh, and, excuse me, powerful, uh, there is simply no data uh, that suggests there's anything even approaching skill in mutual fund performance, as you folks well know. Being in the top quartile uh, the past five years predicts almost nothing about what's going to happen to that manager's performance over the next five years. It looks like a random noise 
process. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the harder that people tried to find some element of predictability, uh, the more they the more they failed. Uh, a few people just, I think, by dint of, of uh, you know, uh, some data mining were able to find some things. I mean, active share is the classic example. But those, as you know, don't hold up in the long run. And of course, there's a theoretical rationale behind all of that, uh, which is that in the aggregate, professional active managers are the market. Uh, so on average, they can't beat it. Uh, they have to lag it by the amount of their expenses. That's what Jack Bogle calls the arithmetic of, of active management uh, or, the, or the arithmetic of passive management, if you want to put it in the opposite way. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's, 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 it's just the, the overwhelming science uh, of investing does not uh, speak well of active management. So in a sense right now, sort of the literature, academia, maybe sort of more data or empirically driven approaches, they're kind of having their day, right? We're seeing lots of money that's moving towards passive. Um, people are much more aware of low cost. But then there's also a profusion of literature you know, on various factors, for instance, people arguing that this is a factor, that's a factor. And so how would you suggest someone approach that literature, even if they are as maybe numerate and, and sort of data-minded in their approach as you've been? How do you suggest that they approach that to make sure that they're not being misled and, and chasing after things, which which perhaps are, are noise or things that have been mined towards uh, instead of true sort of risk factors, let's say? Well, you, you put it as well as anybody could put it, which is you, you approach it with extreme caution. I think it was John Cochran at the University of Chicago who coined the term factor zoo. Uh, and he identified, I think, something on the order of, you know, several hundred factors. And you put that in, in quotes. Almost by definition, uh, almost all of those have to be due to data mining. So, you know, what survives? What survives are value, the value effect. Momentum certainly survives, but it's it's a very difficult uh, factor to actually graze in the real world because of the transactional costs and baby profitability, uh, and that's that's about it. And the problem is is that you know even if you have very rigid criteria for identifying a valid factor, it has to be there in multiple markets over multiple time periods. You want to be able to look. Uh, out of sample. So look at the periods of study that you or no one else has initially studied and see if it then holds up in your second set of data. And even if you can identify those kinds of factors, like the ones I just mentioned, you still are left with the problem of too many people chasing it once it's been well identified. I think the most powerful of those factors that I mentioned is the value factor, uh, buying cheap value stocks. Uh, and yet I do worry greatly now that so many people know about it that it's become too crowded a trade. Um, I happen not to think that that's true, but I'm not absolutely sure about that. On the other hand, value's been pretty deeply out of favor, so it seems a little bit contrary to suggest that it's too crowded a trade, right? Yeah, exactly. It's been so out of favor for so long. It's done so poorly for so long. I think over the past uh, 10 or 15 years, the value factor has been negative, at least in large stocks, but not in small stocks and not abroad, that you start to to worry about it. The other, the other sort of straw in the wind 
is there are a few very skilled players out there. Buffett is certainly one of them. And, you know, I'm sure you've been following, the two of you have been following the data. Over the past 15 years, Berkshire A has lagged the S&P 500 by about 30 basis points. Uh, and that's a long period of time, you know, 15 years. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, part of what's uh, been hurting uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, over that period of time. One factor you didn't mention, Bill, is low volatility. And it seems to me that from a behavioral standpoint, that's possibly the most attractive factor, especially when you think about retirees who know that they need to take equity risk perhaps or pre-retirees. Um, it seems like that might be a way to make peace with an equity-heavy portfolio. You would think. Uh, the problem with the the low volatility or one that's related BAB betting against beta is is that it seems to have gotten more expensive relative to the market if you look at other parameters uh, and that's the difference between it and the value factor the value factor has gotten cheaper uh, over the past 10 or 15 years relative to the market whereas the opposite has happened with low volatility and that may be because too many people are chasing it and so is that how you get comfort with value not being loved to death, so to speak, arbed away by investors, the fact that it still is by the standard that you use relatively cheap? Yes. Uh, and, you know, having having said that, not only do I have the fingers crossed on my right hand, but I have them on my left hand and I've crossed all of my toes as well. I, I want to believe that. I think that it's probably true, but like anything else in finance, there is uncertainty as to whether it will be a valid factor going forward. And, you know, one of the central characteristics of investing is that you are rewarded for bearing uncertainty. And that, I think, is part of the uncertainty I'm willing to bear for what I think is a fairly high probability bet, but not a certain bet. So, Bill, um, your book, The Intelligent Asset Allocator, talked about how to approach asset allocation. I'm wondering if you can talk about, since the book's publication uh, 20 years ago, how your views on asset allocation have evolved since then. Really, not very much. I mean, one of the nice things about finance is that there are really very few seminal papers and bits of seminal research uh, you know, if you had to ask, ask I think, anyone, what are the great advances uh, in, in practical finance uh, that academia has given us over the past 20 years, I think the list would be fairly short. Rather, the things that I've, you know, that I've learned and how my uh, uh, thinking has evolved has merely been the acquisition of knowledge that I should have acquired earlier. Uh, so, for example, the, the, the one thing that that I've that I've learned uh, over the past twenty years or so is that you know the riskiness of stocks is is not an it's not an intrinsic characteristic of stocks. It's more a characteristic of the investor than of than of the stocks. And what I mean by that is if you're a young investor uh, and you are in the accumulation phase of your uh, life cycle then stocks are not risky at all. In fact, you want stocks to be very volatile and have low returns so you can uh, accumulate a fair chunk of them at low prices. On the other hand, if you are a, uh, to use the uh, the technical finance term, a geezer, uh, and you have no human capital left and you are decumulating your capital, stocks are three-mile island, Chernobyl level uh, risky. 
and you do want to cut back on them. Uh, so that's the first thing that I, I really should have understood. And then I didn't also, I, as, as, as well as I thought I understood the psychological aspects of investing, there were certain things that I didn't um, really understand. Uh, we're overconfident. I knew that. We tend to overestimate our ability. I knew that. What I really didn't understand 20 years ago, though, is how overconfident we are about our ability to tolerate risk. Uh, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out, people out there who've now looked at uh, various uh, investment uh, simulations on a spreadsheet or online and have decided, yes, I can tolerate a 30 or 40 percent uh, temporary loss in my portfolio. But the difference between being able to see that in a spreadsheet uh, and actually uh, manage that in real time is the difference between crashing an airplane in a flight simulator uh, and in the real world. Uh, you, you just it is it is impossible to to uh, uh, not uh, overestimate your ability to tolerate uh, the risk when bad things happen in the world. Bill, you talked about equity risk for people who are getting close to drawdown or in drawdown. And it strikes me that that's a particularly important point right now. I know that you always make the point that uh, if, if you've won the game, stop playing. But it's very hard to convince this cohort of pre-retirees who have come through the past decade with equity-heavy portfolios that have performed really well. It's hard to convince them to risk. So how do you approach that, um, say, with your clients, for example, who have had a positive experience with equities? Um, it seems to me that perhaps we've defined the fear-greed cycle too narrowly, that it's not just chasing hot stocks or sectors. It's actually just being complacent with equity risk. Yeah, I think, I think that's a real problem. And fortunately for us, um, we have a fairly mature practice. So almost all of our clients invested with us through uh, 08, 09. Um, and we constantly discuss that uh, with our clients, uh, what it felt like to go to go through that. And we stir up those memories. That's an extremely helpful thing uh, to, to do. But you've identified what is an enormous problem, which is, you know, what psychologists call the availability heuristic, or it's, I think in finance, a better term for it is recency, uh, which is that, you know, because stocks have done so well, people have become comfortable with them. Of course, the opposite was true back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Most of the people who were around then still remembered what happened to stocks, the horrible things that happened to stocks during uh, the Great Depression. And they uh, did not invest in stocks uh, as heavily as they should have. <laughs> of course, of course, had they done it, prices would have been much higher. So it's really kind of a nonsensical thing to say. I wanted to, to ask you for a moment about sort of the concept of, uh, I guess they go hand in hand. There's, there's the perils of overconfidence and then there's the importance of self-doubt, call it. Uh, one would hope constructive self-doubt that you infuse a process with. And I think that you've written about this in the past, how important you feel it is to success as a thinker and, and also as an investor and allocator and one would think also as an advisor. And so I wonder maybe reflecting back on your development in each of those areas, you know, where does where does self-doubt play a role in your process and, and I guess how does it inform the way you work with your clients? You know, one of the advantages you have when you've practiced medicine 
uh, is it teaches you just how fallible uh, you are. Not only does it teach you how fallible you are, but you can also observe the, uh, the behavior of your, your colleagues. And it's, I think it's a commonplace among practicing physicians that the very best ones are consumed by self-doubt. You know, we all, physicians all think about uh, their therapeutic and diagnostic triumphs, the, 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 how they were clever, so clever in one case or another to come up with the right diagnosis or the right treatment that no one else did. Uh, and you also do the opposite. You, 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 you ruminate uh, about the things that you've missed. And what I have observed, and I think other physicians, and this is also true of lawyers and accountants, I think, in most other professions, is that the best of the lot uh, have a much higher ratio of rumination to celebration, all right? Uh, the very best physicians that I know think constantly about the things they've missed uh, and rarely celebrate their triumphs, rarely you know, you know, talk about the things that they've done well. And exactly the opposite is true of the quacks, to, uh, to be rather blunt about it. And of course, psychologists know this very well. It's a well-described effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is the inverse correlation between competence, uh, externally assessed competence and internally assessed uh, competence. And, you know, of course, we have administra administration in Washington, D.C. right now, which I think is the poster child for that. So it's an odd thing, though, because I'm thinking about, say, with a doctor, I might be a little bit nervous to feel that my doctor were plagued with self-doubt about whatever diagnosis or treatment he or she was proposing. So how do advisors navigate that? Do they just sort of internally and, and with one another talk and think about self-doubt and question the recommendations they're making? How do they sort of put forth confidence while also making sure that they're challenging themselves? Well, I think that the Dunning-Kruger effect is a useful thing to talk about with clients. Uh, we talk constantly about how uncertain we are about the direction of stocks, and we talk about it in two ways. We talk about the empirical work that shows that no one can predict the movement of overall market prices. Uh, almost no one can properly select securities. And we, I guess, paint our, our self-doubt about that. Uh, in its proper light, which is we think it's a virtue to be consumed by self-doubt. And we, you know, use the counterexamples about how uh, the classic counterexamples of people who are supremely self-confident, uh, who turned out to be incompetent, you know, the, the Ken Lays and the Jeff Skillings uh, and the Bernie Madoffs of this world. Can you give an example where maybe you've revisited, you know, maybe one of the key planks of your framework or the way it is you operate as a practitioner and dealing with your clients, you know, and, and just as you've developed, you, you've, you've come to change that somehow. I mean, is there anything that really sticks out as an example of how sort of this searching quality in all of us maybe spurred some, some continuous improvement, let's call it, and, and you made some changes in the way you work with your clients or the way you implement on their behalf? That's a really good question. Is in, in terms of, you know, separated out into two questions, one is, how you constantly reevaluate the investment process. And that's those are the things I've just been, been talking about. You know, you can't predict the markets, that there are processes, there are approaches and strategic approaches which work well in the very long term, over 20 or 30 or 40 years, you hope, that may not work well in the short term, which could be any period of time less than that. And value, the value effect is a classic example of that. Another example of that, you know, I used to argue a lot with 
the late great Jack Bogle, and you know at least over the past. 20 years he's been right about, which is the benefits of foreign investing. There are certainly theoretical advantages uh, to investing abroad. Uh, and unfortunately, over the past really 15 or 20 years, they haven't panned out so well. I continue to believe uh, that uh, that's beneficial, but I have to uh, admit that I'm not absolutely certain about the benefits of foreign investing. Foreign stocks are so much more inexpensive than U.S. stocks. As far as uh, you know, dealing with clients, I think that it just has to do with constantly reinforcing that uncertainty and also listening to them when they talk about risk. And you know, really, it's just the web of human interaction, which is the better listener you are, the better a communicator you're going to be. One thing you've talked about, Bill, is um, keeping the fixed income component of client and retiree portfolios or anyone's portfolio, really pretty high quality short term. But there has been an opportunity cost to doing that, especially um, with respect to to short versus, say, intermediate term. Are you still a proponent of just uh, keeping things quite safe and, um, and, and not taking any risk there or not taking significant risk there? Yes, there's there's you know there's two kinds of risk uh, risks with uh, fixed income. There's credit risk and there's duration risk, uh, and we haven't seen a lot of duration risk over the past uh, fifteen or twenty years. But you know even a, a glancing familiarity with um, financial history shows that that is an enormous risk. All you have to look, all you have to look at is is at what um, uh, happened to long bonds during the 70s and 80s. Now, at the moment, there is no opportunity cost. The yield curve is flat, as we both know, as we all know, from about, you know, six months out to seven years, just flat as a pancake. So at the moment, there's no opportunity cost, but there certainly has been an opportunity cost the past 10 years. Uh, And the thing about fixed income is that, you know, you really don't appreciate it uh, until bad things happen, until the ottoman hits the fan. Uh, and it's that 3 or 5% of the time when the world is in a very bad state uh, that you really appreciate the quality in your, in your bonds and, the, and usually and very often the, the low duration in your bonds if, if there's an inflationary uh, component. And it's that 3 to 5% of the time and how you behave during that three to five percent of your time that determines your long-term success as an investor. What I like to say is that investment is a process that you know transfers wealth to people from have a strategy and who can execute it from those who don't and can't. Do you think it could be argued that one of the implications of your philosophy, which is sensible in many ways, is that perhaps active has a greater potential payoff in fixed income? because there are some who are you know, really concerned about hedging out liabilities and keeping things as ultra safe as possible, and they forego some of the opportunities that would otherwise be available to them, leaving it to other, call them professional, maybe we'll put quotation marks around that, investors to, to scoop up that alpha, so to speak, or do you think that that's largely hogwash? Um, I think it's a reasonable hypothesis, but it got tested. In the sense that that active strategies didn't stand up to that test in the face of pressure. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the standard mantra of the, uh, of the active investor is 
that during bad states of the world, we can control risk. But again, there's now a lot of data that shows that in bad states of the world, active managers um, don't do any better than uh, than passive managers do, which again gets back to the you know arithmetic of of active investing, which is that it's mathematically impossible for them in the aggregate to do so. Backing up to international, um, it seems that there is maybe a semi-convergence around there being a pocket of cheapness in emerging markets. Um, and I know that you enthuse about emerging markets when you think they get good and cheap. So the question is, are emerging markets attractive to you today, or do you think that um, they are pricing in significant risks? I think that you have it exactly right. I think that they are fairly priced at the moment, whereas most of the time they are not fairly priced. Most of the time they are overpriced. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you look at the very longest series of data, and I'm thinking in particular of Jorian and Getzman's series of data over several dozen countries going back to the early part of the 20th century, what you see is that emerging markets as a group actually have lower returns than those in developed markets. And that's kind of shocking. You would think they would have higher returns because they are higher risk. So the question is, why is that? And one of the things that got me first interested in finance in general was 25, 30 years ago, when I saw the data that suggests that the highest security returns and also the best economic growth uh, and the highest GDPs were in English-speaking countries for the most part. Uh, There were a couple of non-English-speaking countries that also had good performance and good security returns, notably Switzerland and Sweden. But the rest of the names on that list were the United States, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and England. And why was that? The answer that I I think I and most people who are interested in institutional economics is English common law, okay? The way I would put the opposite case, talking, for example, about Chinese equities, which have had high economic growth, should have been the beneficiaries of high economic growth, but in fact have had, there's no other word for it, execrable returns over the past 25 years, is that a country that does not protect its children from lead-contaminated toys in earthquake-prone schools is not liable to protect the share interests of minority foreign shareholders or the ownership interests of minority shareholders. So they've had very low returns. So I'm very skeptical about emerging markets because they're institutionally so weak. Um, The neutral weighting, depending upon your weighting scheme right now, is about 10% of world equity. And to me, that is an upper limit of the exposure that I want to emerging markets. I want to be I want to be at that 10% only when they're relatively cheap as they are right now and they certainly were 20 years ago. Um, but when they are valued similarly to developed markets, I want to have a lower weighting to them because I think that their longer term returns are lower. Are there any notable pockets of cheapness in the markets writ large today, in your view? Well, I think that emerging markets are cheap relative to developed markets, which I think makes them <laughs> fairly valued, you know, according to the long-term scheme that I've been talking about. If you think that emerging markets have lower returns, but do have some diversification value, then you want to be fully invested in them only when they're relatively cheap, which is the case right now. 
you know, if you're going to ask me about it on a country basis, that's not a game that I play. I think that's a mugs game, uh, especially, you know, with the vehicles that are available to investors today. I think for the average investor to be playing the game of saying, you know, I want to be invested in Polish stocks, but not Zimbabwean stocks. You know, I think that's a fool's errand. If you're going to own, own emerging markets, it should be as part of a overall diversified portfolio. And then maybe we'll bookend that conversation. I'll ask you about the converse, which is areas that you think investors should be especially wary of, perhaps because they're nosebleed expensive. Uh, what are some of those areas that perhaps you've you've worn clients away from because they've been asking about them because perhaps they're popular um, or have just come up in conversation with others? Well, you know, I tend to look at asset allocation from about 50,000 feet. So, you know, we don't think about, uh, you know, consumer durables or pharmaceuticals or tech stocks. We basically just invest in large passive uh, indexes that uh, invest in single countries or regions. So we really don't get into that game. But from 50,000 feet, the answer to your question is the United States. You know, the U.S. markets are uh, significantly overvalued relative to the rest of the world. And how do you arrive at that judgment? Just I realize that we're talking about some of the rudiments perhaps of your process, but you talked about it in the context of EM previously. So when you look at the U.S. and you're trying to make an assessment of its relative cheapness or priciness, what do you tend to look at? Uh, well, you tend to look at the usual aggregate balance sheet parameters, you know, price to book, price to earnings, dividend, yield. Uh, those are very easy things to look at. If you're looking only at the U.S., the easiest thing to download and look at by far is Robert Schiller's wonderful spreadsheet, you know, that goes back to 1871, uh, which gets to another issue, which is, you know, one thing that I gradually learned about that has changed in my process over the past 20 years, which is the realization that equity parameters are not stationary, all right? And what I mean by that is if you, say, look at the valuation parameters of U.S. stocks from, say, 1871 to 1950, it gives you a range. It gives you what looks expensive, what looks cheap. And then if you apply that over the next 69 years, what you find is you have your head handed to you because the distribution changed dramatically before 1950 and after 1950, to, to put it succinctly. And, you know, just because before, say, 1958, you bought when the yield of U.S. stocks was higher than 3% and you sold when it was lower than 3%, that worked beautifully before 1959. Uh, guess what? It didn't work so well after 1959. I want to talk, Bill, about the uh, evolution of the financial planning, investment advisory industry, we see a lot of advisors increasingly moving away from providing investment management. They're sometimes outsourcing that to other parties and focusing on more on financial planning. Do you think that's a healthy direction for uh, financial advisors? You know, I don't really tend to think so much about the investment advisory business you know, when I think about what's going to be on my tombstone, investment advisor is not one of the things I want up there. Uh, you know, I'd rather be remembered for some of the other things that I did. Uh, I, I think it's healthy. I think the, 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 the trend in the industry, if I'm going to identify any trend at all, is for investment management services to um, to become cheaper. You know, you're, you're seeing an increasing number of players like our very tiny firm and some other firms have adopted the same approach, which is a very lean approach. You know, we don't have 
a big fancy office. We work out of our homes. We don't have, you know, very, very attractively dressed uh, administrative assistants. We don't have leather chairs in our office. Uh, we don't drive seven series BMWs. And I think that that model is intrinsically attractive to, to clients simply because of its lower cost. So is it an advantage that, that investment advisors can think more about financial planning? Um, I suppose it is. But those are generally services that you can unbundle and buy much more cheaply. I mean, if you want advice on estate planning, you're a whole lot better off paying a tax attorney by the hour than by, you know, paying your investment advisor 1% of your assets. Can you talk about some of the conscious choices you made in setting up your advisory practice, you know, where you knew you'd have to be prepared to say no to a client request or uh, maybe forego a part of the market that would otherwise be available to you in order to stick to the framework, the business model that that you are committing yourself to. And I would imagine that's differentiating in some ways. So it'd be particularly interesting to me. Yeah, well, we, we're we're extremely lucky. Uh, we are, you know, both my my partner and I have already had careers. Uh, we don't have to be doing what we're doing to to make a living. We're very fortunate in that regard. Another way of saying that, I suppose, on the opposite side is that we're old. Uh, and we don't have to worry about putting kids through college anymore. And and so we don't take on any client we don't want to work with, which I, I you know, without sounding too horrible about this, is, is 95% of people. Uh, we don't want people who expect us to beat the market. We want people who are informed about finance, who understand the basics of market efficiency. We also want clients who've demonstrated an ability to successfully uh, invest through the bad times in disciplined fashion. And so we're extremely choosy in, in who we take on. And so we have a very enjoyable practice as the result of that. That's you know not a model that works for most people, though. Let's talk about um, retirement preparedness in the U.S. I was looking back on um, some of your writings from long ago, actually back to 2001, where you said that um, within the next 20 years or so, you expected that there would be some catastrophe that would would arise in the 401k space. Have, have things evolved in a better way or a worse way than you expected for the whole defined contribution space? Better uh, for the simple reason that security returns since 2001 have been fairly high. But there are larger societal forces at work, which I think speak and predict a slow-moving and fairly impressive disaster over the next 20 or 30 years. And, you know, these are the data that we all know about. There's the data from the CRR at BC, at Boston College, that, you know, they calculate an at a retirement risk index. And what they find is that, you know, 30 years ago, about one-third of retirees would be at risk for financial distress during their retirement. And that number, that 30-some-odd percent, has increased almost monotonically every single year. And the last one I looked at was a couple of years ago. It had risen to 51%. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that means that 49% of people are pretty well set. But what you have to understand about their index is that it contains a bunch of very generous assumptions. One of the big ones is that people reverse mortgage their house. 
when they retire. Another is that they completely annuitize their retirement savings, which are both things that relatively few people are going to do. Almost no one annuitizes uh, their retirement accounts uh, when they retire. And then, of course, you know, there's the consumer level data that we're all aware of, which is roughly half of people in the United States would be unable to uh, meet a $500 or $400 emergency expenditure uh, without having to borrow. Uh, That doesn't speak for a population of people that's going to do well in retirement. So nudges have arguably been a positive force. So auto-enrolling participants, um, auto-enrolling them into a sensible target date fund. Um, Should nudges go further in your view? How could we be doing more on that front to help improvements? Well, I'm kind of a radical in that respect. Um, I don't think that the system needs nudges. I think the system needs dynamite. I think what we need is a portable retirement system that looks like an enhanced version of Social Security, uh, where people's retirement accounts are invested in a uh, very low-cost vehicle that looks a lot like a target date fund that is portable and that you simply can't borrow against either. In other words, you're going to basically tie people to the mask. Um, One of the basic principles, uh, I think, of practical personal finance is the more autonomy you give people, the more choices you give people, the worse they do. And I think that we need a system where there is almost no choice and that, uh, you know, people wind up with a pile of retirement savings that has been efficiently managed according to best principles and then gets annuitized out after they retire. So we obviously we don't have that system that you describe. And so I'm just curious, were we to move towards such a system I'm wondering how the advice that you would offer to your clients or that maybe you write about more popularly, how that might change. Would your, would your framework, would it differ materially from, from what you've presented to this point, either in your practice or, or elsewhere? Well, in, in today's world, you know, in the system that we have, you have to save an enormous amount of assets to retire. Let's say you need $40,000 a year to retire in addition to your Social Security, and if you're lucky enough to have pensions, that means that, you know, you need to save a million dollars. It would be nice if we had a system where people didn't have to save quite so much because that's an unattainable goal for probably 80% of the population. Another related issue is that um, people who are under short-term stress, financial stress, like the people with no emergency fund, for example, the way the brain works, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's really difficult to to even do any sort of long-term planning for investments or anything else. Isn't that right? Yeah. I I mean, you know, you can't read a finance paper without seeing a reference to Kahneman and and Tversky, and their work is is very important. You know, prospect theory and uh, our our non-intuitive feel for for statistics. But what's really important is the evolutionary psychology, which is something they touch on, but they really don't develop, I think, as well as they could have. I mean, we evolved in an environment where we uh, our risk horizon was, you know, in milliseconds. You know, if you couldn't get out of the way of a snake or a tiger, you wound up as something else's lunch. And in modern post-industrial society, the real risk horizon is 50 years. You know, it's, it's, it's measured in decades. And so our brains didn't evolve to think about long-term risks. And sort of the analogy that I like to use is that of the skunk which is, you know, over 10 million years, the skunk evolved a strategy for dealing with predators, which was to turn 180 degrees, lift its tail, and to spray. 
And that works very well in a state of nature. But when the major predator in your semi-urban skunk environment is now a hunk of steel weighing two tons, moving 60 miles an hour, that is not a good uh, strategy. And we are financially in the position now of the skunk in a suburb. If I may, I wanted to widen the aperture for a moment. And I know that you've talked in the past about the importance of maybe staying within your circle of competence, for lack of a better term. And you know, focusing on things that you feel that you understand. And so I wondered if you can give an example of, you know, one of those situations where you chose to edit yourself and didn't sort of dive into an area just because perhaps you thought that it was beyond your grasp or there was no way to sort of take the insights that you gleaned and and put them to use them to your client's advantage, I should say. So what you're asking, I think, is what do you do as an investor if you're not interested in finance and you're not all that good at math? And, you know, unfortunately, that's the position that, that the average citizen finds him or herself in. And the answer is a system that gives you relatively little autonomy. So the ideal, from a practical point of view, the best place to be is working for a company that gives you a 401k plan with a generous match and a good low-cost menu of mutual funds. And you pick a target date fund, and then you invest regularly in it, and you throw away your account statements every year and don't even think about it. That is probably the optimal strategy, and that will beat probably uh, you know, 95% of investment professionals. You referenced uh, Jack Bogle earlier on, Bill, and I wanted to talk about your great long relationship, how you initially met Jack, and um, just, just sort of what your connection was to him over the years. Uh, well, you know, of all the people who've well, let me let me back up and just say that Jack is one of the most important people in in my life. Uh, you know, he's he's you know I've already mentioned him as one of the people who who you know greatly uh, informed my view of investing very early on, and he's probably number one on that list. But Jack did that for a lot of people, and the converse wasn't true. I, I doubt I was, you know, even number one thousand on on his list of important people. He was that, you know, protean of a character. The best way I could summarize my my relationship with Jack and the kind of person he was was about ten years ago. We were, you know, moving and just going through piles and piles of stuff and figuring out what to take and what not to take. And I came across a stack of correspondence from the early 1990s. And I don't know what generated this, but it must have been a cranky letter that I wrote to him about why he, Vanguard wasn't offering this, this asset class or that asset class. But he sent back to me, a, you know, about a thousand word reply, about a, you know two pages of single spaced type, uh, explaining to me exactly why I was wrong. So here was somebody who, you know, was the was the was the head of one of the largest investment organizations in the world, which probably even at that time had a million clients. And he took the time to dictate a letter, which you know probably took him at least a half an hour or an hour to uh, to come up with and dictate. That's the kind of person he was. If you were to follow him around the Vanguard campus as I know at least Christine you have, you would see that he was able to greet you know, most of the people he met by name, uh, you know, this organization of tens of thousands of people. That's the kind of person he, 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 he was. I once you know, joked with him on stage once about what a mensch he was, and he, he's not that familiar with Yiddish, so he had to ask me to define the term mensch, which of course means a decent person in Yiddish. 
I wanted to ask a question about another saying that I th- believe you're fond of, which is something that everyone knows isn't worth knowing. And so I was just curious, can you give an example of something apart from things like time arbitrage that that you feel are worth knowing and, and isn't something everyone knows that we haven't talked about to this point? For instance, is there a maybe a topic or a theme you've been intensely studying because you feel it's relatively undiscovered off the beaten path a bit? Yeah, um, I think there are several different areas that fit that criteria. Um, If you put a gun to my head and told me I had to actively pick stocks, uh, I don't recommend this to anyone, but the way I would do it if I absolutely had to is I would read the work of David Yermak. I think he's still at NYU, a finance professor at NYU, who's looked at the factors of corporate governance on security returns. And what he has found, to give just one example of his work, is that when a CEO or his or her immediate underlings are using the private jets of their corporation, or they have an extensive private jet fleet, that is a marker for poor security returns. When a uh, CEO or his or her underlings are buying pieces of real estate that cost more than $10 million. That's a very bad thing. It's basically corporate management that thinks more in terms of their own aggrandizement as opposed to the well-being of their shareholders. So that's one bit of finite, you know, very specific finance research that I think is not well enough appreciated. A lot is said about ESG investing. And the problem with ESG investing is that the E and the S parts probably have negative returns. Companies that are very socially responsible in terms of their environmental and public health characteristics and policies tend actually to have lower returns. And that's a whole nother subject. But companies with good governance probably have higher returns than normal. So you're putting together three factors, two of which are negative, one of which is a positive. So I'm not terribly enthusiastic with the whole ESG approach. I am enthusiastic about the G approach, though. The other is is simply refers to the general principle that you're referring to, which is the really nice thing about headlines in the financial press is that you don't have to worry about it because they've already been incorporated into prices. If something winds up as a headline in the newspaper or at the top of the front page on the Wall Street Journal, uh, you can stop worrying about it. It's already been impounded into prices. It's not going to do you any good to think about it. Related to ESG, presumably you have clients who have an interest in making sure that their portfolios reflect um, one value or another or don't reflect uh, certain types of sectors. So how do you navigate that? Do you just counsel them that I'm okay with this, but there will be a trade-off, or do you um, suggest they don't do it? How do you approach that? We suggest they don't do it, and it's it's for a couple of reasons, aside from the investment reasons that ES stocks tend to have lower returns than than normal. It, it also doesn't make a lot of sense from a social and ethical and policy point of view, because if a company uh, is not socially responsible, its stock price will fall. Not only does that mean it's going to have higher returns, but it also means it's going to be much more likely to be taken private if its, if its shares are inexpensive. And when that company gets taken private, guess what happens to public scrutiny of its policies? It grows even less. All right. So the smart thing to do is 
to own those stocks, try and, if you're really interested in, in trying to influence their policy, use your shareholder position to influence their policies, and then take the excess returns that you make from investing in socially non-responsible companies and invest them in advocacy. That's a far more efficient approach than disinvestment. I think that disinvestment just fails some of the basic precepts of common sense and finance. It's, it's more of an ideological marker than it is practical use. I think it's something that people do so they can feel good about themselves and not anything that's of any real practical value. From a practical point of view, it's actually counterproductive for the reasons I just went through. That's helpful. I wanted to go back for a minute to Jack Bogle, and it's clear you revere him and justifiably so. But there were also topics, I would imagine, issues that you constructively disagreed with him on. And and I actually wanted to maybe flip that to the relationship that you have with your clients, where I would imagine that, in a sense, they revere the work that you do for them. Um, but there probably are issues that they constructively disagree with you on. And so I just – I wonder, as a practitioner, how much bend do you show in those situations in trying to accommodate for, you know, maybe sort of – views that they have where they do constructively disagree with you or want you to implement in in a different way than you otherwise would if you just had a blank sheet of paper. Is there that dynamic with your clients and, and do you bend in, in certain situations? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and that ability to bend is informed by, you know, hopefully a, a healthy dollop of humility about how right we are about something. And a classic example of that might be precious metals equity. We maintain a small allocation to precious metals equity. Well, we have clients who who want a higher than normal or a higher than recommended allocation to gold stocks. We're happy to do that, all right? Because, you know, if we think that, for example, one and a half percent allocation to precious metals equity is, is about right, if they want two and a half or three percent or even five percent, hey, that's fine with us. Uh, if they want 0%, that's fine with us, too. We have other clients who are very comfortable with having a fairly high allocation to foreign stocks, as high as 40 or 45%. We have other clients who aren't, and so we might only hold 30% for them. That's the way we do things. Well, Bill, I think we could sit here and um, pick your brain all day. I so appreciate your time. Jeff and I both appreciate your time. You are so thoughtful in all your responses and so thought-provoking. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us today. Thank you, Christine and Jeff. It was awesome. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H in the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy and or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services, LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. 
and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data, analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.